On today's episode, a group of riders plan to do a trip that would last five months. They do their due diligence, they plan carefully, prepping their KTM motorcycles for the conditions, packing spare parts, they even divide the tasks among themselves to ensure they all share part of the load in the prep and the trip. Yet only five days into the trip, they all know something's seriously wrong. The trip is breaking down. But to make matters worse, so does one of the KTMs. A broken bike, a long wait for parts, a late ferry, and maybe a few other minor things, but placed one on top of the other, something had to give. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. www.maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system, and it's easy to swap from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that's gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate the flat tire in less than three minutes, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. Best Rest is also the North American distributor for Googletech filters. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. www.cyclepump.com. Uh, hi, my name is Francis Walsh. I'm uh, living in Nanaimo, British Columbia, and I'm just finishing up a career in dentistry. What do you mean you're just finishing up? Well, I started relatively young at the age of 23, and I've been practicing for 34 years and uh, figuring it's uh, time to move on and try some other things. What are you going to do? Uh, well, I've got a number of trips planned initially. I'm going to try and... Uh, help my wife out more around the house. That's, of course, something that uh, a lot of people are skeptical I'll be able to do that. Seriously, is she sitting there? Is that what you're saying, that? No, 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 she's not here, but oh. I, she'll hear this anyway, so uh, <laughs> she'll she'll chuckle. She's got a good sense of humor. <laughs> so you've got some trips in mind that you're thinking of doing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're uh, heading off to Morocco the day after I finish my last day of work. Uh, just my myself and one of the friends that was on the the trip that uh, I called you about, and um, two of the f- friends that we met while we were in Greece uh, on that same trip. So we got a, a little hodgepodge. Uh, How did you get into riding motorcycles? Uh, a friend uh, back in when I was in dental school, uh, second year dentistry, a friend had a, a Yamaha XS11 Special. 
and uh, offered me a chance to ride it. And I took it for a spin and dumped it on the first ride, but uh, still was uh, relatively unscathed. So uh, was hooked by just the, the the freedom of riding. So that that cemented the the relationship with bikes, and it's been ongoing. Sometimes little little uh, breaks uh, here and there for reasons that life throws at you but other than that it's been pretty constant you've told me uh, about uh, trips since 2012 is that, is that when you started doing sort of big trips or longer trips no 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 pretty much right from the get-go uh, i was more into riding for traveling purposes than i was for just the speed or commuting and stuff there so the first bike i had that was a uh, what was it a yamaha uh, no, it was a Suzuki GS850G uh, and uh, used that uh, to get away on weekends and do weekend camping and stuff. And then uh, in, then started uh, expanding the horizons and moved into the sort of exploring Idaho and Montana and then uh, did the Grand Canyon trips. These were back in the 80s and then did a cross country to Key West from Calgary and uh, and then for our honeymoon in 1989, my wife and I uh, shipped our um, Kawasaki Concourse to uh, Frankfurt and did a three-month honeymoon tour through Europe. So motorcycling touring started right from the get-go. Way back when you were doing the um, when you were riding and, and going camping and stuff on the bike, what was the bike to you then? Was it was it just transportation or was it something more? <laughs> No, it, it was uh, it was about it was transportation, uh, but it, it's kind of the the thing that motorcycling has always offered is a, a sense of freedom, and I've likened it to it's you're the kind of the modern day cowboy. I mean, with very little, the bike being the equivalent of the horse, you can just throw um, your tent and a sleeping bag and some provisions and. The continents at your feet and stuff there so it was it was like i say it was uh freedom uh, sort of at uh, at your beck and call back when you were doing that though it wasn't really common was it for for people to be riding around camping on motorcycles i, I know some people did it and you certainly saw it but it wasn't like it is today no 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 you were you were definitely the um the oddball the oddball, the oddity, yeah. like when you, and it was great. I mean, maybe it was uh, partly uh, you met a lot of people because people would be amazed that, uh, you know, the big, the bike that I did the first uh, trip down to the States was a, a yeah. Yamaha 650 Turbo Sika. And it's not generally considered a, a touring bike. And, and a lot of people, especially back then, I mean, you, you know, you're talking the VMAX and big bikes and Harleys and Aspen Cades and, mm-hmm. and stuff. So people were sort of surprised that you could do a trip on a 650. Uh, and especially we were doing a two up, you know, with the old saddlebags that were the strap together. And you, you pretty much had to line the inside with uh, all your stuff had to be in a garbage bag because there was no waterproofness and stuff like the gear was nowhere near what we have nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's more like a, a takeoff from horse gear, really. I mean, yeah. I think that's what I had on my bike originally was um, a set of, uh, I was going to say panniers, a set of saddlebags off of the horse is really what I started using because we just, just, that's what we had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just, you, there wasn't the uh, uh, specific market, so to speak. So you kind of threw together whatever, you know, duffel bags and 
and bungee cords all yeah. over the place. <laughs> do, do you still get out of today, like for, for riding that you do now, do you still feel you get what you, you, you did back then out of the ride? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, my, uh, we were talking about it uh, just recently, my wife and I, and, and in a lot of ways, the, the trip that I did, that we did as our honeymoon to Europe, was in a lot of ways more adventurous because we didn't have we didn't have near the stu- the, the things at our disposal that uh, make it easier nowadays. So we didn't have Google Translate, we didn't have GPS, we didn't have Airbnbs, and uh, ho- you know all the apps that go with it. Um, we you 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 really just wing and you didn't have the EU even like we went when the Iron Curtain was just in its finishing stages, but we still had to, we had borders to cross that were, we just didn't know. It was very cool. It, it was, in some ways, more of the adventure, but you can still kind of get that if you just kind of unplug a bit or, you know. But but you're also more isolated that way, you know, because I, I know that on your recent trips, I've seen you, you have a Garmin uh, GPS with you and you, you've posted uh, onto Facebook from it and, and doing things like that. It makes you very connected. You're, you're sort of, you feel, I imagine that you're feel, out there feeling like you're sort of part of the community, part of a big community, which you are because you're so connected. That's kind of difficult to get away from nowadays. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the advantages, the connections uh, can be huge in that um, uh, when I had some problems with uh, on the most recent trip or uh, with uh, the clutch in Azerbaijan, the adventure rider community, uh, uh, you know, one little post uh, and people were volunteering all sorts of different ways to help and stuff. So, yeah, uh, um, and then if you compare it to the uh, trip that I did in 89, uh, I think we were a month and a half into the trip before we even made a call home to uh, Canada because back then you had to go to the, you had to go to, through the post office we were and uh, it, it took like an hour and a half of uh, of arrangements to just make a simple phone call so it's it's night and day the difference and then the connection all these people that are helping you out are ruining your trip I uh, know they're they're good they're good they're they 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 uh they make you you they're they're a huge part of uh feeling that you can do things they're, they're like a safety net that you don't you know like you could be on a trapeze you don't realize the big safety net that you have underneath of you but back in the day let's say when you were when you're riding around with a bike that was sort of ill-equipped at least by today's standards i know it didn't feel that way then you just sort of did what you had to do but there was a certain feeling when you went out you, you had that feeling of as you said being disconnected somewhat um more of an adventure. And I hate to say that because that way, because it sounds kind of weak, but I mean, I think that there was a feeling back then that you got when you went out, when there weren't the cell phones and there weren't the satellite connectivity, et cetera. Um, that I, I'm not sure is that can be recaptured even part of it. Like, as you mentioned, unplugging, but you always know it's there. I mean, it, it's sort of like you've always got that safety thing there, which I think changes the way that we act when we go out. I mean, if you always know there's somebody that's going to come and rescue, no matter how deep you get into the wilderness, you have a certain way of approaching things that you wouldn't otherwise, if you knew you're on your own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the big difference is like what you said is um, before you were more responsible for yourself and you, you might have to pick yourself up out of the problem. Nowadays, 
internet and a visa card, you can you can solve a lot of problems. Like there's like a friend of mine says, there's not there are not too many problems that cash won't solve. You know. Yes, that's true. Cash or, or time. Somebody just said that recently on the show. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I listened to that one that way. And, and they were talking about if you have the abundance of both, you're set. And, and so in, in some ways that does take away from the adventure because uh, it's funny. Again, my wife and I were just talking about what actually defines adventure, like what makes a trip an adventure. And she said, you know, you know, a lot of time people think, you know, is there some inherent risk? And and no, I don't think I don't think risk is of uh, danger is necessarily. And uh, she says it's just pushing your comfort zones, uh, uh, going outside of things that uh, are are regular. Uh, and and so, um, yeah, uh, it was definitely. And, and so not, to kind of bring this back, uh, the nowadays with the internet and the connections and all that. The, com- the comfort zone gets harder to push, so people have to push more onto the the boundaries, like you know where they're going into Afghanistan's and things like that uh, to get to get crave the adventure. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking when you're saying that. I'm thinking that okay, well, well, maybe the way to look at it is yes, we have all these safety nets, but are you doing things now you never would have considered doing before? I mean, like on this last trip that you, that, that I want to ask you about, were the things that you did there that you would never would have considered if it was in the '80s? Uh, yeah, actually, one of the interesting things was, and it's a little thing, it's, um, but um, um, roads, roads taken. So I use um, Pocket Earth on my iPhone as my primary navigation uh, tool, and I don't use it in a routing mode. I just use it as a, an overlay, like an electronic map that I happen to know where I am. And so the difference now versus the 89 trip was that in the 89 trip, I would come to an intersection, look down what looked like an interesting path, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't know whether or not it connected or whether it was going to be uh, a dead end and I'd have to retrace. So I wouldn't explore that path. And now with the, uh, the um, GPS mapping, I can look and say, yeah, that'll get me through. And uh, so uh, le- there's less sort of uh, blind exploring uh, now. You can, you can kind of figure things out. Maybe fearless, you know, it makes you a little, little more fearless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's less to fear <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. yeah, sure. We're talking about the safety net, of course. There's, there's definitely yeah. less to fear. So, I mean, uh, I guess we, we venture in. And who knows? Maybe it, maybe it, it opens things up. It's difficult to tell, you know, because as, as all of us go through our life, you know, you experience things when you're young and everything changes as you get older. Um, maybe, you know, often we look back on the old days as being nostalgic. You know, people say, oh, back in the day it was, you know, yeah, so yeah. much better. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is just different. Maybe. Maybe, maybe it just changes and, and our ways of judging and experience change and, and our ways of the way we feel. Because when I'm asking you about this, I feel like you're not really giving me an answer. Like you don't really know the answer yourself, whether it's that much different or, or whether it's a, a lesser experience, I guess really is what I'm asking. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I think it's just it's. I think different is better than gradations of lesser or more and stuff. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, you can, like you say, turn off, but you still have the knowledge that you have the safety net. So, uh, I, I can't change that. And and I'm glad I did what I did. Um, uh, but. I wouldn't necessarily go back to it because I I do like a lot of the advantages that. Um, 
the modern conveniences do bring to it. And so the, the big thing is often, and I think a number of your other uh, uh, interviews have addressed it, is that you have to decide, you have to kind of use your filter on how much you let it dictate. Um, and that that's always a personal choice. I mean, some people are going to go to the uh, Google or the Google Translate and uh, and the routing route uh, on their um, GPSs, and other people will do sort of more the the, the miming and the stumbling, uh, uh, getting lost kind of thing. You've done, as you said, you know, loads of trips. You've done, you know, trips to Ecuador and Turkey, and you've done the, a bunch of the back backcountry discovery routes in the states. And and you you did a trip more recently um, that I want to talk to you about, where you took five months off and and planned it with your friends. Can you sort of set that up? Uh, yeah. Um, bottom line is, uh, I remember reading about the Mongol Rally, and thinking that seemed like a th- thing I would like to do. And then the things that I realized about the Mongol rally that I didn't want to do was, well, one, I'm not a 20-year-old on a gap year, and uh, I'm not going to, I'm not really a party animal. So that that kind of took that out. I didn't want to go in a beater car, and I didn't want to go uh, as fast as possible. And so it was kind of a combination of the Mongol rally, uh, sort of fused with the idea of the, the Silk Road and stuff there. And then so then as with most things i kind of like and a lot of times these plans are kind of like a snowball that you start at the top of a hill and you start it rolling and it just gains momentum and and next thing you know you've got a massive boulder of a snowball uh uh, has got a a mind of its own and stuff there so we um had uh so once the the idea to go to mongolia was in there then it was kind of like how much time do we need Reading the the, the sort of the various resources, it seemed like five months was a reasonable amount of time. It would require um, moving relatively, like not stopping too much. Um, and then it was a matter. Of, first, it started out with uh, three of us: my brother and a, a friend who was on the um, Ecuador trip. And then next, and then the thing is sometimes. When you publicize these things, the word gets out, and, and I have a hard time saying no. So we ended up adding a couple other guys to the the trip there. So uh, then uh, then it was just a matter of picking which year to go and uh, and putting our various notices into the people that we work with. So you've got five people that are going to go on the trip. You're going for five months. What's the plan for the trip? What were you where were you thinking of going? So the original plan was to fly the bikes to London, uh, kind of blitz through Europe relatively quickly, uh, or Western Europe, just to get down to the Balkans and then start to kind of take it in. Um, Drive through Turkey um, into Georgia. Um, and then the debate was whether to we I originally wanted to go through Iran after doing a lot of research about the uh, troubles that can sometimes be in uh, catching the the quote unquote ferry uh, from Turkmen or from uh, Azerbaijan to Turkmenistan. So we were going to go through Armenia into Iran, through the stands, and um, then uh, pop up into Russia, down back into Mongolia. And then carry on to Vladivostok, and then uh, take the ferry from Vladivostok down to uh, South Korea, and then ship the bikes home from South Korea. So that was the original plan, starting in middle of May and ending in the middle of September. 
How many miles a, a day do you plan when you're doing this? Well, we kind of just looked at it as it, I think it was going to be roughly 25,000 kilometers. Um, and so we figured we needed to do about, I think, 15 or 1700 kilometers a week. So it wasn't, it, it built in enough to sort of have, we weren't looking at doing any massive days. Um, some of course would be quicker and some would, you know, some would bring up the average, some would bring down the average, but, um, yeah, un, under, under 2000 a, a week, which, you know, I mean, guys in the iron butt rally can pound that off almost in 24 hours. Sure. I mean, that, that's not all that far, but you, did you build in time for breakdowns or, or for holdups, border crossings, all those sorts of things? Uh, not specifically. No, definitely didn't build in time for breakdowns. Should have. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. We didn't really, we thought we, you know, our breakdowns we thought would be tire repairs and things like that. Um, and we definitely didn't build in the time, uh, we didn't expect to crash and we didn't expect, uh, um, my clutch. Well, yeah, the, the, we didn't plan for the things that that happened, that uh, the mishaps. Well, and I'm not trying to point out something that you did wrong because it's always easy in hindsight to say, oh, you should have done this and you should have done that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just sort of curious as as far as planning goes. You know, so how you took what you took on for planning. Now the bikes, you I think you took KTM's. It was everyone riding a KTM. Yeah, yeah, all, all we the had. Same model? Uh, no, uh, two of us had uh, the KTM 1190, and three of the guys had KTM 950s. We did kind of make one of the guys had a BMW 1200. Uh, actually, two of the guys had BMW 1200s as well, but they decided to take the KTMs because they liked their off-road uh, abilities a bit better. And um, they also the, the the train of thought was that. Um, Having similar bikes, we could share spares and stuff. So the two 1190s and the three 950s and stuff there. So now, what about for for, for gear for prepping the bikes? Um, what sort of gear did you put on? You know, you the soft panniers, hard panniers. Did you take tank bags? That that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I have uh, soft bags, panniers. Uh, the other guys had uh, the metal bags. Uh, not not to tour it. Uh, I think uh, one of the guys might have had the plastic KTM's, but uh, the four of them were hard panniers, and uh, and I was uh, the soft panniers. Did you go any farther than worrying about what luggage you're packing on the bikes, as far as the bike preps? Um, oh yeah, yeah. We yeah we 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 were well prepared. We used the well, we thought we were well prepared. Uh, we used the BDRs as kind of trial runs to how much gear to pack and tenting gear. Um, we had uh, we divided up the duties with regards to um, different aspects of the trip to people who are more qualified that, like I say, the guy who is the most motorcycle, uh, experience, he kind of was on the maintenance side of things and what to bring and how to outfit the bikes. We had, uh, two medical doctors. So they were in charge of, um, uh, medical insurance and evacuation and uh, emergency kits and things like that. Um, so yeah, we, we did all, we had, we did a lot of preparation. The problem with um, spares is the spares that we brought weren't the spares we needed. And I think that's the classic case for everyone. Sure. Yeah. Pretty difficult to count on. what I mean, other than wearing parts, it's pretty difficult to count. You can try, of course, but I, I know it's Sam, Mount, Sam Manicom said on his trip, I mean, he carried all kinds of parts and he basically gave them away to everybody. He didn't, I don't think he used hardly any of the parts he had with him. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, other than we brought oil filters and uh, some, you know, like you said, the consumables or the regular maintenance things. But the the the, the spares that we did bring, I don't think any of us used. So let's just fast forward to when you're leaving then. You've you packed up the bikes. How did you fly them over to the UK? Uh, so the the choice to fly uh, was either um, Air Canada has a fly your bike program and uh, Motorcycle Express, I think they're, uh, and I think he's based out of New Jersey. And it came down to Motorcycle Express was... Uh, ready and willing to work with our timeline. Uh, Air Canada, which by all accounts seems to run a very good program, uh, hadn't announced the program. And because of our timeline, uh, we weren't willing to have that kind of up in the air. We wanted to cement it. And it was it worked out to roughly about the same cost and stuff. So we ended up going to Motorcycle Express and they shipped. We had one guy flying from Toronto, three guys flying from Calgary, and myself flying out of Vancouver. And they could arrange all the, the make all the arrangements. And it was a simple matter of uh, driving to the airport a day or two before the actual flight, and uh, less than a quarter tank of gas. Taped the battery terminals, strapped it down to a pallet, and uh, flew over there. And then when we landed in uh, London. Uh, the Toronto guy and I arrived a day before the other guys. So we landed, checked into our hotel, took a cab to the cargo and we had our bikes three hours later and it was great. Oh, wow. It was a seamless, seamless. Yeah. Yeah. That seems fantastic. So, and, and the, you all shipped from where you flew from. You didn't have to go to one central spot. No, we shipped from each of our own sort of closest hometowns and stuff. Nice. So what was it like when you got to the UK? How did that start out? Um, well, it was pretty cool. I mean, you're driving on the other side of the road, so you gotta suddenly pay attention. And yeah, round roundabouts, and we were in that. We we landed in Gatwick, and um, we took back roads right off the bat. Like uh, we 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 kind of avoided a lot of the major uh, motorways and stuff. Um, the, Ian and I the the guy that flew in with me earlier, we had a day, like I said, without the other guys. And so we drove the back roads down to Brighton and uh, we only we ended up only taking motorways and stuff if we had to, not not really because we wanted to. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a smart way. You, you ended up getting a flat though, didn't you? Just leaving the airport? One of the guys, the Kerry uh, from Calgary, he uh, it probably happened during the um, the scrap down process, they, there was a flat. They thought they had fixed it at the um, cargo terminal, and he got less than a kilometer away. And uh, at the gas station, it was flat again. So, but luckily, uh, Ian and I had already had the day, and we knew where there was a motorcycle shop, and so we we were able to get the parts, and it put us behind about three hours. But that might have been a foretelling of things to come. <laughs> <laughs> and so when does it okay where are you headed next where, where are you when you leave the UK where are you headed um so when we left the UK we we decided we we would go to Vimy Ridge because uh it was the 100th anniversary of Vimy Ridge it was Canada's 150th anniversary and as Canadians we thought it would be bad form to not at least visit the spot there so um we went to Vimy Ridge and the next kind of thing was just wander away uh, down. Some of the guys were kind of uh, 
sort of marking, uh, collecting uh, stickers for their panniers. And so they were trying to kind of pop into the near, nearest country to pick up a sticker and stuff there. So we wound our way down to the KTM factory in Madagohofen in Austria, because again, we thought, well, we should do that. And then uh, from then, uh, the trip became kind of more uh, open. We, we had purposely not set a, a defined route because we knew that was going to not be likely. It, it would put too much of a, a pressure on the trip. But you've got visas arranged. You, you know you have to be in certain yeah. countries certain times. Yeah, we had uh, we needed seven seven visas for the trip: um, uh, Russia, Turkmenistan, uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, but we tried Iran. We got turned down twice to go into Iran. Canadians kind of have a, a difficult time getting that. And Russia, Russia was a big visa to get. We needed a we thought we needed a a, a multiple entry and stuff there. So. Yeah, we had we had seven visas in our pocket and with a timeline to get there. But there was sort of Turkey is a 90 day visa, so it's pretty generous. Uh, the Turkmenistan visa was sort of the most time sensitive. Um, and the other ones were all fell in place there. You've got the five of you traveling together. Are you old friends or, you know, do you sort of get to know each other on the trip? How does that come about? Um. Well, I have a variety. I mean, one of them is my brother, so we're, we're we go back a long way. <laughs> <laughs> What's your brother's name? Kevin. We had two Kevins on the trip. We had uh, Kevin, my brother, which we call KW for uh, simplicity, and um, the other Kevin was Kevin Hanrahan, and we called him Hanny. So we had, and Hanny was sort of the one I knew the least. Uh, met him through the sort of some of the prep rides in the backcountry uh, discovery routes. Um, Carrie was a, a friend that uh, met uh, when I was living in Calgary through snowboarding. And um, then uh, Ian, Ian's a friend uh, that we've known. He kind of came along on a, a Welsh family uh, surfing trip and uh, he hasn't been able to shake us since. So we had a variety of uh, length of relationships and stuff there. From what I gather, uh, Ian's from Toronto, Carrie's from Calgary, you're from Vancouver Island. What about the Kevins? Yeah, they're both from Calgary too. From Calgary, I see. Yeah. So okay, so you're 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 headed off. Where, where do things start to? Where do you, where do your problems start to arise here? Well, the first kind of thing that we realized is that uh, we had. Um, different agendas or different uh, purposes or reasons for doing the trip and stuff there. Um, and uh, so what happened was we sort of realized that the five of us traveling together was uh, straining uh, the group and stuff. So we identified it for relatively quickly within a week and we sort of said, okay, it's not necessary that we ride all five together all the time. We can just sort of say, um, you know, some wanted to ride early and stop early and uh, and do the, the quick route. And others, myself in that party, wanted to kind of wander. And I didn't mind if I spent eight hours during the day wandering through to get somewhere. Uh, we would just agree to meet somewhere down the end and stuff. So that was the first kind of departure from the original thought. Like naively, we thought that uh, we would uh, ride five together all the way across and stuff there. So. And that happened, uh, like I said, in the first week uh, in uh, Austria. 
it's a lot to plan a trip. I mean, for those who haven't done it, to try and get different personalities and ideas, and because that's one of the things that you often want to work out before you you go off on a trip is is why does everyone want to go on the trip? What's your your reason for being there? But it's good that you you guys managed to sort that out right away. I mean, the, the problem comes up, you recognize it, and you sort it out, and it's done. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's funny you say the the why is is the huge, and we had addressed the who, the what, the where, the when, but we really never addressed why we, you know, we, I mean, we all flippantly said, you know, we want to go to Mongolia and things like that, but it's, you need to kind of delve more deeply into, well, why do you want to go to Mongolia? Is it, is it to just check it off the list? Is it because you want to, uh, go spend a night in a yurt? Is it, you want to see Ulaanbaatar? Yeah. You, you really need to kind of really investigate the why when you're traveling with mo- multiple people. And how do you want to travel? How fast do you want to travel? Yeah. How yeah, much do you yeah. want to ride? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a very good point because I mean, we knew how much we needed to do to kind of keep the pace, but what, how you accomplish what you need to do, like you, like, like we said, if you're an iron butt person, you could bang off the week and then spend four days, uh, like hit, hit your, your weekly mark and then spend four days and somebody else might be, you know, it's like the tortoise and the hare kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You still get to the same finish line. But how do you want to get there? Did you see that come out in the in the five riders at the start of the trip? Did you see that you all of a sudden realized that some of you ride differently? Uh, you mean difference in the in, in the way you ride? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, uh, I was sort of more. I, I'm kind of guilty of the hey, look, there's a squirrel. Um, you know, if there's something that looks good off to the side, uh, I I'm eager to go investigate it, and I forget what I, we were focused on a bit there. So I'm willing to kind of uh, change plans and stuff. And others were sort of like, no, we want to get to where we're getting because we got we got the you know they had the the big picture and more in mind and stuff there. You ended up having a, a breakdown with your bike. What happened to that? Um, my breakdown was the slave cylinder for the clutch and supposedly the master cylinder too. And this happened just at, like literally as I was pulling into the KTM shop in Azer- in Baku, Azerbaijan. Like on the drive over, I kept my clutch seemed like it was failing. And then by the time I got to the, the mechanics uh, shop there, it was gone there. So um, fortunately it happened where it happened, like in hindsight, because if it had happened a week later in Turkmenistan, it could have been a lot more complicated. So it happened on the right side of the Caspian, so to speak. It still, it still was very inconvenient and it was eh, devastating at the time, uh, because I mean, you know, there was a, a lot invested, uh, in doing the trip and, um, to have it start to crumble and with a degree of helplessness because uh, Azerbaijan is not an easy country to get uh, part shipped to. How does a master cylinder and a slave cylinder go at the same time? I don't know. I'm not very mechanical. Uh, I could see the slave uh, the, the slave cylinder, I guess, is sort of one of those things that has been uh, often upgraded to the Oberon one uh, on the KTM 1190s. And I seem to have missed uh, that uh, memo in my uh, res- researching the, um, the modifications to make. The master one, it's, it's hard to say. Like, um, it's possible that like I, I had a Ram mount for my, uh, DeLorme 
that was used the the cover of the master. So I'm not sure if it did something to wreck the seal. Um, the bottom line was um, we we did what we could to sort of see if we could get the master working. And with the timeline, and I was still at this time trying to make the uh, the hope for ferry over to Turkmenistan. So I wasn't about to replace only one to find that the other one was also a problem. So um, again, it's kind of one of those things uh, the visa came to sort of try and solve the problem. And it was expensive to get the, the two shipped. Uh, and it worked. I have I have the old parts here. I haven't uh, investigated that, whether or not it is truly broken or not. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, though, replacing both while you're there rather than finding yeah. down the road. You had something else. But but, but this, this created a huge problem for you. So how did you get the parts? What did you have to go through? Well, this is where the adventure rider community really kind of came through. There was a guy in Poland that was really willing to strip one off of – uh, the showroom uh, bike that he had and send it to me. There was a guy in Kazakhstan that was going to do the same thing. The biggest thing we ran into is the time to get it shipped and stuff was going to make me miss the deadline. Um, the slave cylinder, I got lucky. I sent a message to Oberon in the UK and they were actually closed for the weekend, but one lady was checking the messages and she realized there was a sense of urgency in my uh, voice and um, she sent me the part. So I had the slave coming. And then uh, the master was more difficult and the well, I was able to look – so the places that I was able to locate it, I would find out that they weren't able to ship it to Azerbaijan. It wasn't in their, their shipping uh, list or whatever. And the one place that I found that did have it was back in Greece, and then but the problem with the Greek one was they wouldn't sell it to they wouldn't allow me to pay for it with a foreign registered visa card. I don't know why. So the friend that I made when we were in Varia, Greece, uh, he said, "What's the problem? I'll buy the part. I'll ship it to you. We can settle it after." And so he did. And uh, he, he made the difference between me getting the part uh, and not uh, in, a, in a reasonable timeline. We're going to take a two-minute break and be right back. When we come back, this is the point where things start to turn on the trip. Stay with us. You know, I have no problem bragging about my IMS foot pegs because I've tried them extensively. They work extremely well. They're incredibly durable and they keep my feet connected to the bike. They give me the control that I want on my bike. You can't ask for any more than that, but they're offering you more. They're made tough. Cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating system. They're made in the USA and they have a lifetime warranty. IMS has been around since 1976, been making parts for off-road racers and, and enthusiasts for over 40 years. So they've got a full line of adventure pegs right from their ADV pegs right on down to their rally pegs and more. www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, email, whatever, please mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. www.imsproducts.com. Well, I just got uh, word that Road Dog Publications has another new book out. This one's called The Wrong Way Round. This sounds pretty cool. This is by Andy Benfield. Uh, it's How Not to Travel to Burma by Motorcycle. 
sort of sets things up. The cover, it's a blue cover with a broken sign on it that says the, the wrong way round. And it looks like a, a woman and a man standing by a motorcycle, a man scratching his head. Um, it's supposed to be a good book. And, and uh, Road Dog has a, a bunch of books out and they specialize in motorcycle adventure books. Their website again, www.roaddogpub.com. They also ser- they also have um, Graham Field's book, In Search of Greener Grass. They've got Mike Fitterling. He's the owner. His book's out. Um, they've got a, a book called Asphalt, Asphalt and Dirt, Life on Two Wheels. Um, a Short Ride in the Jungle by Antonio Bolingbroke Kent, which we had on the show here. Zoe Cano's books as well. Um, Zoe's got a few books out now, a number of books out now, uh, including Bonneville, uh, Go or Bust, um, which I, I'm sure a lot of you know already. Anyway, again, the website, www.roaddogpub.com. You can get the books anywhere books are sold, or you can get them directly from the website. Um, and of course, anytime you're dealing with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> So how did the uh, this whole episode of, of getting your, your parts and getting this replaced on your KTM, how did that affect the rest of your trip? <laughs> it changed it 180 degrees. So uh, you well, may well, have noticed on. that. How many days are we talking? How, how, long, how long was the holdup? Uh, so it was eight days. The, the problem was we ran into the classic uh, Turkmenistan ferry problem of uh, high winds. There were huge winds. And so... The ferries. So the first four days didn't matter because um, uh, what happened was uh, no boats were going. There were no boats crossing. So the first four days, no, none of the group was going. So what happened after day four, though, was our Turkmenistan visa was time sensitive. And so the Turkmenistan visa was now ticking. So what happened was by the time I got the part, uh, there was about a 30 to 40 hour window in which I could get the part on the bike, hopefully make sure that was the only problem, and try and catch a ferry and drive 1,200 kilometers through uh, Turkmenistan to get out without being illegal and stuff there. So I had sort of drawn a line in the sand that if if I don't have the part here uh, by such and such a date, I'm not going to chance going to Turkmenistan. So So because I didn't have the part in time, uh, Turkmenistan was out. So that meant I couldn't go south through Iran because we'd been turned down twice for visas for that. So the other option was to take the ferry across to Kazakhstan and uh, drive down and meet them in Uzbekistan. But the problem with that is, again, you're dealing with the Caspian Sea crossing. It's a longer crossing. And now I'm 1,200 kilometers further out the wrong way. And so it could have... so to sort of in a long-winded way get to your thing. The trip could have proceeded, but it wouldn't have been, it would have been now racing against the clock the whole way. And with the the nagging kind of thing of, have I really solved the problem or is there something something bigger and stuff? So I decided that if I was to continue, it would be cutting out all the parts that I really wanted to see on the Silk Road. And so the decision I made was that the Silk Road would have to be another time. And the, so the TBT, which we had called the trip, uh, which was for the big trip, be, for me became to Baku and turn around. <laughs> so, so at that point, that's what you did? You turned around? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so what happened was the day I got the message that my part was at the airport, that same time that I got the call to go to the airport, the, the other guys got the call that there was a boat leaving. And so they hadn't decided who of the remaining four were going to go. Uh, and I so and I was out of contact all day, so I didn't know at the end of the day if I was coming home to one, two, three, or four guys waiting for me, or none and stuff. So uh, three of the guys ended up making the jump, the two Kevins and Kerry. And they had trouble in Turkmenistan? Well, so the, it was supposed to be a 15-hour ferry ride, and it turned into... 54 hours? Uh, they, oh, wow. they, they, they were supposed to leave. They got the call that morning. They went down to the ferry terminal. They loaded on the boat. All the things they were told that they would have, they didn't have. There were no cabins. There was no toilet paper. There were no meals and things like that. And then the boat ended up staying in the harbor all the way through till the next morning. So they were 24 hours already chewed up, just sitting in the Turkmenistan or in the uh, Baku port. And then when they sailed across, uh, they got across and then they were told there was no room for them to dock. So they had to, I think, wait through the night. And so by the time they landed and cleared customs, they had 24 hours to do 1,200 kilometers and get out of the country or be illegal. And during that, so they did a, and they, they were initially told that they could change their ex- exit point, which would have shortened the distance. And then when they landed, they were told, no, they had to stick to the original itinerary. So they, they had to do uh, a lot of kilometers on, you know, we're not talking uh, Trans-Canada Highway and stuff there. And um, and then Hanny lost his passport. Uh, the, I, the, the story goes uh, dodging camels in a sandstorm. Uh, the tank bag was open and the passport with all the visas uh, that he needed to carry on the trip and also as uh, proof of being legal. He lost them and so he, he turned, had to turn back and go to Ashgabat to sort that out and the other two kind of were faced with the uh, if they stay with him they're going to be illegal and if they carry on they're kind of uh, with mixed emotions they carried on. So that, that was the Kevin from Calgary that's not your brother the other Kevin uh, and Carrie kept on going. No, Hanny, Hanny's the one that stayed. Kevin, my brother, and Carrie kept going. Right. Sorry, so, see, the, the, Kevins, the Kevins confuse it. <laughs> and did they end up getting out okay? No. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. But uh, so they ended up, my brother ended up uh, having a fall in Kyrgyzstan, I believe it was. And uh, he suspect he, he's a medical doctor. He suspected uh, there were bigger problems than just a sprain, although even the sprain was going to be bad enough to stop it. And then they limped into, almost literally into uh, Almaty, Kazakhstan. And then they discovered uh, that, uh, actually, no, actually, they didn't discover it was broken, truly broken until he got back to Canada. But the trip was over in uh, Kazakhstan. They left the bikes there. Uh, in Almaty with plans to return in 2018. Um, but uh, that that plan didn't work out either. So so th- this is this is all it's completely falling apart here. Now, do you get no- a notice from them? Are you guys in touch the whole time? Um, no, I have to unfortunately like uh, Ian and I kept uh, in good touch with um, Hanny while he was in house arrest in Ashgabat. 
And uh, the other two, we kind of it wasn't it wasn't uh, the best of partings and stuff. There, it, it was a very tense time and stuff. So uh, we were aware of each other, but there wasn't a lot of direct communication. You said that leaving the bikes there didn't work out. Why not? <laughs> Uh, well, they did return the following year, um, and uh, my brother's bike, uh, I think, lasted about a thousand kilometers before the engine seized, and uh, so he ended up uh, uh, having to fly home without it from, I think, Barnal, Russia. Uh, I think they did make it into Russia, and then uh, Kerry ended up. Uh, uh, blitzing it and just starting getting to Vladivostok as fast as possible. So, but he never ended up going to Mongolia. So, so it, none of us, none, none of us uh, completed the trip as we had originally intended. Kevin, your brother though, he abandoned his motorcycle. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he didn't ship it back. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if he abandoned it at the side of the road or if it uh, got taken into the nearest town. I think it got taken into the nearest town. So, so how many bikes came back? Did all the others come back? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the, uh, um, I think. Uh, so my bike and Ian's, the two 1190s, Ian stayed in uh, Baku. So when I came back from my uh, the motorcycle shop, he was there and he and I did part of the trip back. Uh, uh, and so he sh- ended up shipping his bike home from Paris with Motorcycle Express again. Uh, I ended up doing my reroute and uh, shipped it back from London at the end of September. Um, Hanny, the guy who was stuck in Ashgabat, he ended up uh, two, three, three weeks house arrest and then he got, he left, but he had to leave his bike. And then he sold it to another Calgarian who went the following year picked up the bike and did uh, a bit of a stands tour and then through Russia and up to Nordcap. And then I believe he shipped the bike home. So, so four of the five bikes I think are back in Canada and the fifth one's either at the roadside in, uh, in Russia or in uh, Barnell. Obviously there was no trouble with leaving the bike there. I, I, he's not arrested. <laughs> so, <laughs> not yet. You never know what bridges we've burned uh, with these, with these things and stuff well, there. The, the whole trip sounds like, you, you know, you guys put a lot of planning into it. There's a lot of preparation, the bikes, the thought process of what you're going to take, etc. If you're going to do this trip again, let's say you're right back at the start and you know what you know now, what would you change about it? Um, I would, and this is no reflection on the guys, but I would travel with less. Like, uh, I, I, I had a good fortune of meeting, uh, uh, Elspeth Beard at the start of the trip, largely due to your, uh, uh, podcast here. And, um, uh, she and I agreed that two is best and it doesn't, it doesn't mean two bikes, but just two people having one other person, two is a, is a really good number to travel with. Uh, things go up exponentially as you add people and stuff there. So if I was doing it again, I would say two is best one or three, uh, one or three are, are okay. Um, so I would limit the number if I, on a big trip like that. Um, I would have, uh, a more open timeline and I would use my Irish uh, visa or Irish passport and go through Iran. 
Because you sort of mentioned that um, that there was, uh, yeah, I think the way you said it was we, we didn't depart or something on, on the best uh, of terms or something like that. There was obviously some serious tension here between the five years. Um, yeah, I think I think it was just uh, the, the the stress of uh, the not like the the. the the Baku situation didn't uh, didn't uh, ease the situation. Um, not knowing when the ferry was coming, uh, everyone so everyone was faced with the prospect of the trip ending. Uh, if the ferry if the ferry hadn't come the day, like if the ferry had not come the day that it did, none of those guys would have carried on. They wouldn't have been able to. Um, so this whole ferry thing hanging over us, my part hanging over us, um, we we didn't. We didn't communicate as well as we could have. And I think I remember listening to you one podcast uh, where you were chatting with couples that travel. And and I think the lesson that they said, uh, the one the one that takeaway that I got from it was that um, do something nice for somebody else kind of unsolicited uh, or, you know, without uh, gains intended. Um, but if you, you know, pick up a croissant for somebody or pick up a coffee, you, you, you can build a relation, a, 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 a sort of a, uh, an interpersonal relationship that is, is just better. And, and I think the thing that's hard, well, with the motorcycles, because uh, like I, I've been fortunate to do a lot of um, offshore sailing trips and, you know, when, when so- things fail, like they did on our trip and, and the interpersonal kind of thing uh, breaks down a bit. You sort of, if you're good at any degree of self uh, investigation, you sort of wonder how much of the problem you are. And everyone's a, a, to, to a certain degree, a part of the problem um, in delivering sailboats. There's a much more of a teamwork uh, uh, mentality because it does take a team to move uh, a boat uh, and you have to have a great deal of trust when you're sleeping, that somebody else is going to uh, not sink you. On the motorcycle, the problem is that you're all set up to be individual. You don't need each other, and um, and I think that's a potential problem. You mentioned um, that you sort of divided up some of the tasks as far as preparation for the trip. Um, you know, getting insurance for medical and all and all that sort of stuff. What what about on the trip? Did you actually have your jobs? Because part of that, that what you're talking about on the sailboat is knowing your job. I mean, you may get frustrated with somebody, but you know that they have a job to do and they're doing their job. But as you mentioned on the bike trip, you're sort of all independent. Did you arrange any sort of, or was there any way you could arrange it and say, okay, you're going to be in charge of this. You're going to handle this. You're going to handle that. Um, the, uh, the bike maintenance was still kind of the primary domain of uh, care. And I think we had two people assigned to each thing again, because we didn't want to have somebody take on all the responsibility. And also in the case that somebody was incapacitated or not uh, able to carry out the functions that somebody could, uh, was knowledgeable and stuff. So we kind of stuck to the same kind of roles that we had originally uh, set out. And, um, yeah, that for the most part seemed to work, uh, uh out, uh, as, as it was intended and stuff there. We just didn't deal with the adversity as well as we should have, probably. I know I've heard it said before when it comes to problems, when things break down, often it's not just one thing. It's it's a culmination of things that probably are very minor in in themselves. But when they stack up, I'm thinking of uh, Three Mile Island, I think was like that, wasn't it? Where, uh, yeah, if yeah. you remember that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a number of things that stack up that really by themselves are meaningless, but in the end. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, so it's kind of like you 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 don't you don't identify one thing because it it was a nothing, but it's the, the butterfly effect, you know. It's like the the little thing that you know you take you take that one road and that puts you in a different spot uh, than you would have been, and then you hit a patch of gravel that wouldn't have been if you'd taken the other road, and everything changes. But you can't go back and say, well, I shouldn't have taken that road because. You don't know. If you'd taken the other one, you might have been hit by the bus. That's so true. You, you were talking a minute ago about, you were said about doing the things and you'd heard on the podcast where the couples were talking about doing something. You're talking about for one another on the trip, not for people you're meeting. You're talking about interpersonal no, no. skills for each other. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, just... Because when you do you that, know. it helps bridge a, uh, a problem. Yeah, I and mean, it can be as simple as, you know... The guy's late getting up. Uh, uh, you take off his bike cover so he's got one less chore to do, or you know, you, you grab a coffee when you're at the cafe and things like that. So they're not big things, but they just build a, a sense of um, teamwork, I guess. So looking back on that trip now, what's your take on it? What do you come out with? Um, well, a lot of things, I guess. Um, well, I, I, I mean, this has been expressed by everybody pretty much that you've interviewed is the world is a good place. Like 99% of the people in this world are, are, are really good. Like, uh, they want the same things to work a little less, to eat a little bit better and to have a good chuckle and stuff there. So that's the first take. Like the, one of my kind of primary reason for doing the trip was, um, I just wanted to see for myself what what's out there because you get so many conflicting reports with the media and stuff, and especially with our, our North American media, they, you know, it kind of harkens back to the old uh, uh, Iron Curtain days where you know you uh, you think that everyone behind the wall is uh, has a finger on a button ready to send a nuke your way, and you you think uh, in modern day that uh, everyone over there wants to uh, kill you. They don't. Uh, they, they, are just curious. Everyone's curious and stuff. So that, that'd be the number one take that it's, it's a good place out there. And, and, um, yeah. You know, I, I've got to say this when I hear this, my, my thought with humans is that we're attracted to anomalies. We're, we're attracted to the, the rare things in life. Those are the things that catch our mind. And maybe it's a survival thing. It would make a lot of sense that, you know, you need to be aware of what's different, not what's the same. And, and quite often, like everybody who travels says the same thing. They, they say that people are good in the world, yet many other people will say, well, if it's so good, why am I seeing all this stuff on Facebook? Why do I hear all this stuff on the news? Why do I see this stuff on Twitter? The fact of the matter is, the reason you're seeing that is because those are the anomalies. Those are the things that we're attracted to that catch our eye. We, we're all rubberneckers, I think, at, at the root. And we want to look at those things that terrify us or, or scare us. And it's it's trips like what you've done there and your experience um, that sort of gives you a probably a, a, a clearer, I think definitely a clearer picture of the world than someone who who never does it. Yeah, I mean, I can't say anything other than I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. Like, uh, it, it's like that Anne Marie song, uh, you know, nothing happened in the world today or, you know, if there's good news no one wants to read about it oh you just sounded so canadian there when you said ann murray <laughs> no one else knows ann murray you realize that <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna be googling her now to see who she is yeah what did you what did you say about the adventure though like about your your thoughts on adventure now uh i would say 
Oh, well, the adventure can, uh, like, I mean, this may be a rationalization, but uh, the turnaround in Baku was the best thing that happened because uh, it allowed me to uh, explore Eastern Europe. And I never would, I, I, I would have always thought that, you know, you're kind of aimed for the big things like climbing the uh, Mount Everest and the, and the rounding Cape Horns and things like that. So doing the Silk Road or riding to Ushuaia. There are a lot of cool. There are a lot of cool places to see, and so um, the adventure can be wherever you wherever you want it to be. Uh, you know, just and Elspeth uh, said the, like when we had a chance to visit and stuff. She said, just go out and get lost. You know, you don't need to. You don't need to cross continents to have an adventure. You mentioned that you're just coming up to your retirement. You're going to leave on a trip the next day. What's the plan? The plan is flying to Marrakesh, and we've got uh, well. So I'm breaking my uh, thing of uh, two is best. You're not, uh, you're not taking five people, are you? I <laughs> know uh, we're we're six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lessons learned. I love that. <laughs> uh, but but what we've decided is we're two groups of three. So <laughs> oh, oh, I get so, it. So it's not necessarily the number; it's how you envision the number. I get it. <laughs> right. So. I said two is best, one or three is fine. So we're two groups of three, so we're two fine groups. <laughs> I really thought I learned something from you, and, and then all of a sudden we're to this. <laughs> yeah, but but we really are uh, two groups of three because uh, three of the guys are coming from Greece, and two of them are the guys that I met while uh, in our uh, uh, unplanned stay in Varia. And um, so it'll be just nice uh, to ride with them. And we've agreed that uh, we're not – we'll cross paths where it's uh, amenable to both parties and stuff there. And then the other three are the three Canucks. Uh, so it's myself, Ian, who was on – been on I've been on numerous trips. And uh, Wayne, a friend of mine here from Nanaimo, that he was on the Ecuador trip. So it – and and so the lessons learned is we are going with uh, much less of an itinerary. Uh, we have uh, the plans are just to enjoy. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if I have another segment for you. Uh, and then uh, and then after uh, riding, uh, we're going to a, a surf camp in Agadir. So it, it's not only motorcycling. Um, another brother of mine, I got a lot of brothers. So another brother, he's big into surfing. And so we're kind of uh, going to connect uh, on the coast there. Francis, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much and good luck in your retirement. We've got to talk again. <laughs> you bet. Yeah, hopefully we can get out riding too. Well, that was Francis Walsh from his home in Nanaimo, British Columbia. At least for now, I mean, his home could end up being on the road because by the time you're listening to this, well, he's likely just about ready to walk out the door and be retired. He's no longer a dentist, starting a, a new life. It's pretty cool. There's a link to his Facebook page in our show notes.
I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much hey if you like what we're doing here it's built on a model of some advertising and listener support we definitely need your support in there so consider dropping by the website well just drop by if you're curious anyway www.adventureriderradio.com click on the support button and see what we're offering there we'd love it if you consider becoming a patron supporter so that we can count on that monthly support otherwise the shows are still going to be here for you to listen to thanks very much for listening my name's jim martin see you next week This is David Huff. Um, I'm a motorcycle journalist of many years, and uh, uh, I'm talking to you on Adventure Rider Radio.